Um, thank you so much for singing out this morning. I hope you have a Bible. We're going to be in Matthew 10. We're going to start in the middle of a chapter in just a few minutes. So if you want to find your place there and put a, um, put a bookmark there, we'll open up and read that in just a little bit. Um, but we're going to start at verse number 16 and make our way um, through into the next chapter. I'm not reading the entire entirety of the text, but um, we'll be moving around just a little bit. Um, but we opened up a few weeks ago. And we began studying the words of Jesus. And I hope that we have done that. And I've tried to lead us into doing that with fresh eyes. Of course, you've all read the words of Jesus since you were a child. have heard the words of Jesus and sang the words of Jesus in different ways. But we've, been, we've attempted to look at the word with a fresh set of eyes. Now, we obviously believe what many generations before us have come back to over and over and over again. That the words and the work of Jesus are still our world's greatest and only hope. Our journey began as we uh, began to look at the red letters. Our journey began in Matthew's gospel with John the Baptist telling people that God was about to do something, that God was about to show up in a brand new way. For the first time in a long time, God had seemed hidden for ages, but John swore that he was back and he was so close. And then Jesus showed up on the shores of the Jordan River and John first saw and heard him. He instantly knew this was the one. This was the Messiah everyone had been waiting for. And if you remember, John was at the Jordan. He was baptizing people, immersing people in the river, um, telling them that God's about to do something and He's about to bring them a Messiah and they need to prepare. They need to get ready for it. And that outward bath was a symbol of kind of tuning in, focusing in, zeroing in, on God and God alone. And, and it's in this story, uh, you'll remember that we actually get to hear Jesus' first words according to Matthew. Uh, Jesus, essentially, his first words to John were, this might not go how you expect, John, but I promise you it absolutely will work out for the best of everybody. I'm not always going to say things that are popular. I'm not always going to say things that are going to make sense. I'm not always going to say things that everybody's automatically going to say, that's what we thought you would say. But I promise you, if you listen to me, if you trust in me, if you hear my words as if they are the words of God, because they are, all things work out for everybody's. Good. Now, if you read the exchange between John and Jesus, you hear that John is assured that nothing will be in vain, that John and everyone else just needs to trust what Jesus has to say. And we look at the Word with that same attitude. And from Jesus' baptism on, not everything Jesus said or did would always be received well. Uh, for every miracle that, uh, that was uh, met with applause, there were some things that people raised their eyebrows at. There were things that people just simply walked away from and thought, this can't be of God. Now, not everything Jesus said would always be taken how he intended them to be heard. Uh, but And Jesus subverted expectations. And if you've learned anything from these red letter studies, that Jesus entered a world that believed a certain way, and he really turned the entire way of life, the entire ideologies of, of the ancient world, he turned those ideas on their heads. And, and the things that we might think are instinct, Jesus warned us that those things are not for our good, but rather God has a better way. And we decided that red letters equals live better. And if we want to live better, we ought to pay attention to the red letters. And, and, and just over the last few weeks, we've learned that to the world, to a world that believed that might made right, Jesus preached submission and meekness, assimilation, not domination. To a world that believed it's about conquest and conquering and dominion and taking whatever you can, Jesus called us to be people of salt and light and refuge, not people of swords, fire, or revenge. 
to a world that overlooked the smaller and the weaker. Jesus pointed to children as the heart of God's kingdom and said, if you want to get close to God, you ought to follow the example of the children. To a world that was all about taking and spending and hoarding, Jesus preached give, serve, and love. He preached a message of generosity, of sacrifice, for, the, for those that are in need for God's kingdom that is worth far more. And we've learned so far that Jesus has laid a foundation for His kingdom of humility, of compassion, and of generosity. But there's one more pillar that Jesus sets up over and over again in His ministry. And of course, He got a lot to say. We're just focusing on a few things. But I feel like if there was a fourth pillar to Jesus' ministry that goes alongside humility and compassion and generosity... There's is what we're going to talk about today. And, and, and I'll be honest, it was even more baffling than the other three. Uh, whereas humility and compassion and generosity are upheld as virtues by our generation, by most generations since, the fourth pillar has, is something that, to be, even in our day, people have yet to come around as something that we desire or welcome. From day one, though, uh, this has been a hard pill to swallow. But of course, in the early days, all of these kingdom values, all of these red-letter values and virtues, they were thought to be crazy. People loved Jesus for His miracles, His signs, and His wonders, but the values He continually talked about, the things He began giving more and more emphasis to, they were turnoffs to the majority. But there was one guy who was there from day one, and that's John the Baptist. John the Baptist took these initial words of Jesus so seriously Jesus told John, from now on, you and everyone should take their cues from me. And John began doing just that and began preaching that everyone else should do the same. We learned that Jesus came on the scene teaching that we should listen, turn, and follow Him. Listen to what He has to say. Turn towards Him, not away away from Him. But when the Word comes at us, even if we don't initially receive it or agree with it, the, the, the word repent means that what God has for us is better than what our minds might say is best for us. Repent means to change our mind because God has a better way. To trust that what God says is best and to go in His direction even if you aren't sure about it to begin with. Trusting that God is going to make a way and that God's way will ultimately be better. That we listen, we turn, and we follow Him no matter what. John would spend the next few months after he met Jesus telling everyone to give their ear to Jesus. He said, hey, unfollow me, follow Him. He's got the the answers from now on. He's got the word that you need to hear from now on. Because His words will cause you to stop and pivot and turn and yield and think, huh, this is what I've been missing. This is the missing link. Jesus is the Messiah and I should follow Him. But here's what we don't talk about a lot. And we don't talk about it a lot because, of course, we just move on from John to Jesus so quickly because that's how the story goes and that's what we are supposed to do. But John the Baptist was immensely popular. John had been, was the first prophet in ages and people loved John. Mark does not exaggerate when he tells us that when John first came on the scene in Mark chapter 1 verse 5, the scripture tells us that all the country of Judea, all Jerusalem were going out to him, were being baptized by him, confessing their sins to him. So John could have easily you know, got a pretty big ego that these people are coming to him because they saw him as the prophet they had been longing and waiting for. He was a folk hero. He made friends with politicians and with priests. He had a lot of pull in society. He could get votes passed. He could get things done. His fame was rising and rising and rising until Jesus came on the scene. 
And Jesus wasn't just a profound teacher. He was a wonder worker, unlike John. He was, uh, his movement was essentially born out of John's, yet before long, Jesus had eclipsed John in terms of rel- relevancy entirely. But John still had a few agendas. John sought to bring moral reform. He sought to you know, bring attention and fame to Jesus and serve as a, as, a, you know, as a way of getting people to know and learn more about Jesus, using the Old Testament to prove that Jesus was the one they'd been waiting for. John realized that his ministry was a means to an end, the, to, to position and prop up Jesus. So he humbled himself out of the compassion for the rest of the world. He, he ceded all the attention to Jesus. He literally encouraged people to leave his gatherings and go follow and, and look after Jesus. He knew his ministry was a gift from God and it was not his to hold on to. It was meant to lead to somebody and something better. You know, John really set a model for ministers to follow. We'd be better men if we simply paused and gave thought to that every single day, the way that John lived. Maybe you don't know this, but people really wanted there to be this strife between Jesus and John. They wanted there to be this tension and this jealousy. John was the older one that kind of gave Jesus the platform, and then Jesus came on the scene and took all the glory away. And maybe you don't know that, but one time John um, was actually approached by some of uh, the kind of the people that would stir up between the followers. They really didn't have an allegiance. They just wanted to see things burn, right? You know those kind of people. They go online and they say things, and people, they, they, they get people's attention. Um, but one time, a group came to John and began to nag and instigate him and say, you know what, Jesus' movement is really getting bigger and yours is getting smaller and you kind of helped start it, didn't you? I mean, is, you know, do y'all ever talk? Do y'all ever exchange letters? Or do y'all ever call each other? I mean, are you jealous of him? Because he's kind of took, you know, he kind of walked onto your turf and kind of took all the, the you know, the, the, the glory and, and now you're left here with just ten, right? I mean, he's got hundreds and you've got ten. He's got thousands and you've got what? I mean, he's ba- his group has baptized hundreds of people in the last week and how many have y'all baptized? Not a lot, right? And this group comes to John. And they ask him, and they say, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Oh, remember how it used to be said that all were coming to you, John? Now they're all going to him. John, are you okay with that? The cameras are in his face, and the microphones are... John, are you okay with that? Right, what would you say? But John, John, being a better man than any of us would ever be, and will ever be, John says. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Y'all know I, I never wanted to be anybody famous. I am simply a means to an end. I came to set him up. What was given to me can be taken from me. John, prophets don't say that. Heroes don't say that. Famous people don't say that kind of stuff. John, you must be being modest, and John doubles down. He says, the one who has the bride, uh, who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John says, he got the girl. I didn't, and I'm okay with that. I'm not the jealous guy at the wedding that's mad because I haven't got my turn yet. I've been given a turn that I never deserved in the first place. And I'm happy. I'm rejoicing at what God is doing. And then he says something that's so powerful. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Y'all don't realize who he is, do you? 
I'm just an earthly guy that has an earthly future. I'm going to be here and going to be gone before too long. But Jesus, keep your eye on him. Can you imagine having having the security to say that? To be that humble, that conscience of the bigger picture, that compassionate, that generous. John was that kind of guy because John practiced what he preached. He took the red letters seriously and sacredly. When he said he is coming after me is mightier than I, more worthy than I, he meant it and he listened to it and he kept it and he obeyed the red letters like he, his life depended on it, like the kingdom of heaven really was coming very soon. But... As devoted as John was to Jesus' teaching about humility and compassion and generosity, it would prove even difficult for him to swear by this fourth pillar, this fourth arm of Jesus' ministry. And it might be difficult for us too as well. Because, because, for even a man as as humble and compassionate and generous as John, even someone as determined, so determined to be better, to lead better, and plan better may find Jesus teaching on suffering better a little extreme. And we'll get into John's story uh, more later, but you heard me right. Red letters can and will teach us and lead us to be people who are able to suffer better. As in suffer and not complain. As in suffer and not give up. Don't leave just yet. It gets better. As in suffer and know that there's a reason. Suffer for the glory of God. Suffer for the gain of His kingdom. Suffer for the good of somebody else. I'm just going to warn you. If you read the red letters and you obey the red letters, Red letters. If we read and learn from the red letters, we will absolutely learn how to suffer better. And maybe that's not something you want to know how to do. (laughs) But if you trust the red letters, you will learn how to suffer better. Now, now Jesus was a little more subtle at introducing the topic than I have been, maybe. Uh, But let's go ahead and admit, admit what we're all thinking. Suffer better? How about suffer never? Right? I mean, is there not some secret passage or not so secret passage? Aren't people like me supposed to tell y'all where this is at? Is there not some secret passage that says we don't have to suffer at all? I mean, hey, tell me where that's at because I've heard somebody said it was in there. And no one prays, God, I'm asking you to help me to suffer and suffer well. Nobody does that. We don't quote Philippians 4.13 and says, I can suffer through Christ who strengthens me. Maybe we should, but we don't. And listen, Jesus does not expect anybody to jump up in the middle of the sermon and say, Woohoo! I'm so thankful that I'm going to learn how to suffer and suffer well. Now, nobody's going to walk out of here saying, Man, that was great. I mean, he doesn't expect anybody to come up here and sing, Come now is the time to suffer, right? That's not a worship song you're going to hear anybody ever sing. And it's okay. It's okay for that to be our attitudes because no one wants to suffer, much less nobody wants to suffer better. You don't want to get to heaven and someone give you an attaboy. You suffered so much better than everybody else. I mean, come on. I, you know, can you give me a ribbon for not suffering? Is that some you know, virtue? How about not suffering at all? Talk about a much better way to live, right? Joseph, right? He was in slavery. And the Bible kept, always would say things like, Joseph was in slavery, but the Lord was with him. Joseph was accused of doing something he did not do, but the Lord was with him. Like, that's supposed to make us feel better. I mean, if the Lord was with him, he wouldn't have been accused of doing things he didn't do, right? I mean, Joseph was, uh, you know, was put into prison, but the Lord was with him. 
Joseph was, became best friends with the prison warden, but the Lord was with him. I mean, you know, no offense to prison wardens, but I don't want to be best friends with you as a prisoner, right? I don't want to ever be in that position, right? If I'm in God's will, I hope that I'm going to stay out of those circumstances. I mean, I don't want to be in slavery or be suffering in such a way where the Lord being with me comes as a silver lining. I mean, we want the Lord to be with us, but not in a, well, look at the bright side kind of way. We want the Lord to be with us and us to have a lot of money or us to have a you know, free trip or us to have a lot of good things, right? We want the Lord to be with us and somehow we bypass all the problems everyone else seems to go head on into. I mean, come on. We don't want silver lining. We want a silver spoon, right? I mean, we might give people a hard time while they were born with a silver spoon. We'd take it in a heartbeat, wouldn't we? I mean, give me a couple in case one, you know, what I lose it. Now, no one wants to suffer well or suffer better. We want to suffer not at all. Right? But for reasons that we'll get into, that's just not our reality. It's just not. Again, let's be clear. God does not expect, no one is expected, God does not expect anyone to initially rejoice because of trouble, but we can learn to rejoice despite of trouble. And, and you might not buy into this right now, but I hope with a little we can learn today that we can arrive at a place where we understand that learning to suffer better is more important than always instantly getting better. Because finding the purpose in the pain can make for some kind of kingdom gain. And if your initial, if your approach to suffering is always get better, get better, get out, get out, get away, get away, you may indeed find that way out. But you may indeed never actually see kingdom gain in your life because you forgot to seek the purpose of the pain that you were facing at that time. No, that's the angle. That's the angle from which Jesus always talked about suffering. Jesus talked about suffering as something inevitable, something unavoidable, something that we may even find intensified in our lives because of our affiliation or alignment with Him. We're going to jump into a text where Jesus goes from equipping the apostles to build the kingdom of God, giving them the ability to do signs and wonders to bring attention to who Jesus was, to talking about how the hardships that they are about to face, the persecution they are going to face, may end their lives. And if you read the whole passage, the change in tone is sudden, but I think it's on purpose because sometimes the change in circumstances is sudden, isn't it? We don't ever see problems coming, do we? Even if there are signs, we don't pay attention to those because we're just basking in the good things, right? We don't ever see the problems coming, but when they do, it's abrupt. We go from high to low so quickly, and often we're unprepared for them, aren't we? We're unprepared spiritually for what we're about to face. And we often develop a wrong view of God, and our faith is damaged when things don't go the way we expected them to, or wanted them to, or were told they should, right? When we go into suffering without being prepared for what it's going to be like and what we're going to go through, we are damaged spiritually. And sometimes our faith is damaged for a long time. I think being equipped to suffer better can prevent those sorts of spiritual crashes that we all have went through. So I want you to hear Jesus' words. We're not going to get into the detail because, to the nitty-gritty detail, because I think just hearing him brief them on the words alone will get our attention. 
Just imagine being in Jesus' audience and He's just talked about how you're going to go out and you're going to see miracles, you're going to see signs, you're going to see wonders. All this stuff is happening because Jesus is making it clear to the world that He is the Messiah and look what His men can do that are around Him. Look what He's about to do for the world. And then Jesus, on a dime, changes the topic. Matthew 10, verse 16. Behold, as in, hey, come on, I need your attention before y'all check out. I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. That's not going to work. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. I'm sending you out into a battlefield, but you can't take a weapon. And when you are come up against... You should not fight back. Now, you know, he's not giving a political thing there. He's just saying, hey, this is what it's going to be like serving me in a world that is rejecting me. But beware of men. Well, that's the only people I see, right? People. Beware of people, for they will deliver you to the councils to scourge you in their synagogues, in their worship houses, right? You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. He's talking about what's going to happen to them in the immediacy of His resurrection. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak. For it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. Hey, when they arrest you and they beat you within an inch of your life and they muzzle you and throw you in front of this court that's going to try you unjustly and going to guarantee that you're going to die on a cross, when they do that, don't worry. Why would you worry? Why in the world would you worry? Can we ask a question? No, you can't ask a question yet, uh, guys. I'm still going. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who will speak in you. Now brother will deliver a brother to death. I guess you don't got to worry when you're dead, right? And his father, his child, his children will rise up against his parents and cause them to go to death. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. How about let's turn back, right? Peter's looking around thinking, who's left? Just a few. And you will be hated by all for my namesake. Well, Jesus, if we're dead, we can't be hated. (laughs) That's supposed to be funny. You'll be hated by all for my namesake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. Now, Jesus is not talking about saved as your soul. He's talking about you'll make it through and you'll be a better person for it. Saved means made whole. It means made well. It means made made better. He who endures, he who doesn't give up, will come out of this stronger than they were when they entered into it. He ends this passage with this stern warning that making it through the trial is essential for your growth, for the maturation as a believer, as a person. Now, we can ignore this. And there are people in nice suits with nice smiles and nice hair or no hair. And maybe not in suits anymore. Maybe they're in skinny jeans and v-necks. And they'll tell you that you don't have to ever face suffering. They'll tell you that the reality of suffering is not one that Christians have to face. We could ignore this and live as if being a Christian should automatically mean no bad days, no tough days. And we can convince ourselves that if we always do right and give right, we won't have any struggles. But I can't lie to you like some people can Because Jesus is on explicit record more than just this occasion. It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. As in things that are going to make you fall on your face. They might hurt. They might hurt your feelings. They might set you back in life. But these things are going to come. We can ignore this and only talk about positivity 
that what, then what we will do when life begins to cave in around us, and for some of you it's already caved in, hasn't it? And it's not just our circumstances that stumble. See, when our circumstances stumble, our faith takes a tumble, and it seems like God isn't there, that He doesn't care, and that He isn't fair. And if we remain at this place of not accepting the trial as having a reason or a purpose, we will become so bitter and so hurt that the enemy will pummel us with fear and doubt. And some of us, we're already there, aren't we? We've been there for a long time, and we quit believing years ago. And all the while we pray and we look and we wait and we hope and we pray and we wait and we can't, we, we look for this magic verse or this magic prayer. We wait for somebody to walk into our life and say, it's going to get better just like this. But no matter what we do, it doesn't, does it? And all of a sudden, we who have faith find ourselves in a worse place emotionally and mentally and spiritually than those who have no faith at all. God goes from being an advocate to an adversary. And I'm telling you, this can happen to the best of us. There's an ancient Jewish proverb. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. That if our hope is in the wrong place and we continue to hope in that place or in that thing or in that idea and it never comes, we will become sick because of it. We will become overwhelmed because of it. If we have the wrong attitude about suffering and our faith becomes damaged through that with that attitude, we might lose all hope because of it. Not because God intended that at all, but because we looked at what we were going through the wrong way. So it's good that we talk about how to suffer better because the alternative may mean that we suffer alone. Not because God abandons us, but because we shut Him out. And I know, I know, I could put verses after verses on the screen. All who live godly will suffer. If you live in this world, you'll have trouble. That doesn't make you feel any better, right? And that's not my agenda just to make you, just to hammer you with truth and say good luck. My heart's desire is to encourage you, to tell you that suffering doesn't have to be easy for you, but it certainly doesn't have to be the end either. I'm not asking you to get up and say, wow, I'm so glad for another trial. But I am telling you that you can face this with an attitude. This might not be easy, but this is not going to end me. And too many Christians have a fight or flight attitude. This is either going to be the best thing ever or I'm giving up completely. And shame on us for having such weak faith. Jesus says there is an end. There's a way for you to come through this more whole than less whole. And while we may be cast down, we, won't ha- we don't have to be destroyed. We might be struck down, but we don't have to be uh, 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 in despair. Too many of us give up. Our hearts fail, but we can avoid this. But I've got to be very honest with you. Our conversation around suffering has to be, out, be about how to endure, not how to evade, not how to escape. Because Jesus said the only way for you to get through this better is to endure it, not escape it, not evade it. But isn't there a verse that says I don't have to, I can get out of it, or a verse that says I can avoid it? That's not what Jesus says. Suffering doesn't have to suffocate you. It can indeed, in fact, strengthen you. Listen, escaping and evading is for cowards, for hopeless, but you aren't neither. You are brave and strong and purposed. And see, often in your seasons of struggles, what's additionally painful is when you observe all those around you who have it better than you or seem to have it better than you, right? Isn't that hard? 
And this is, is so important because our confidence in God gets shaken because of our broken circumstances. And it's natural. It's almost unavoidable as people. Even worse, when we take our eyes off Him and we start looking around at them, we're tempted to understand God through their circumstances. Instead of interpreting our circumstances through what we know about God, we shrink what we know about God and we begin interpreting God through what we face and what we compare to and in light of what other people are going through, good or bad. Instead of considering what He might be up to and through what we're facing, we assume He's no longer who we thought He was. Who we probably still believe Him to be if we were in somebody else's shoes facing different circumstances. When we feel like God isn't paying attention to us or won't listen to us or is just off of the throne, when those around us are experiencing what we want, it causes us to say all the more, God isn't there for me, God isn't fair to me, and God doesn't care about me. And then there's those friends who act like they can snap their fingers and God gives them whatever they need and we're left with nothing. And and people like that are the people that make you want to give up. But you can't look at them. Be distracted by them. But even in our own vacuum of pain, we think God is silent. So He must be absent. But if what we've read is true, and what we're about to read is true, wherever wherever God leads us, that's where He is. Jesus gives us a heads up, but He doesn't have to. He knows that we want to bail out. He's trying to keep us in the boat. And this might be very simple, but I think it's really powerful. If God is leading us there, it's because He's there. If there for you is suffering, if there for you is a trial, if there is right here, if right here you are at a place of turmoil and strife and suffering, if God has brought you here, it's because He is here. Jesus goes on to say, listen to what he, listen to, and this might be a little bit tough or a little bit heartless, but listen to what he says in verse 24 through the rest of this passage. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they've called me the master of the house of demons, how much more will they call you of this household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. What you hear in the ear, preach on the housetop. And do not fear those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul. I don't know what killing the soul feels like, but I know what killing the body feels like. That feels like it's going to hurt, and I don't want to go there. Jesus goes really deep, and he said, Don't fear the ones that can kill the body, but the one that can kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. You're not making me feel any better, Jesus. Now I was afraid of him, now I'm afraid of you. And then he goes on, again, changing the topic or changing the perspective. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will? If you're going to be afraid of somebody, you should be afraid of God, but you don't have to be afraid of Him because He cares about you. The very hairs of your head are numbered. Do not fear, therefore you are of more value than many sparrows. So he kind of sure, you know, takes us back and forth, back and forth to this place of being afraid, not being afraid, being afraid. Don't be afraid. And then he kind of gives them, the, he gives the disciples this stern warning. Whoever confesses me before men, I will confess before my Father. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So the gist of all that is do not fear, even if it brings you more pain, because remember there's a purpose in this. 
You know why I believe that? Because there was a man that listened to Jesus do that whole sermon. A man who went on when Jesus was arrested, cut a guy's ear off, tried to to run for his life, tried to cause a scene, tried to save him and Jesus' life as well. Then whenever he realized that Jesus was going to die and he was probably going to die, he denied that he ever knew Jesus. He did exactly what verse number 33 says we should not do. He denied that he knew Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. He denied him and then he went on somehow a changed man and began to live a life with reckless abandon for the glory of God. And then he went on to write this. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Peter would say, listen, I was the guy who thought this is the craziest stuff I've ever heard. I was the guy who thought, Jesus, you're going to run everyone off. You're going to run me off if you keep teaching this stuff. But I stuck around, and I tried to get out of it. I abandoned ship. I cut a guy's ear off. I ran for my life. I came back long enough to see that this wasn't going to end well. I denied him once, twice, and three times. He came back and found me after he rose from the dead and said, listen, you're looking at a dead guy who is back to life. You have nothing to be afraid. And I looked at him, and I realized I have nothing to be afraid of, so I am going to live with fearlessness and even if I suffer for serving him it's going to be worth it because I watched him die and he's back to life and the spirit that rose him from that grave he is alive in me and I can confidently say no matter what I face I am blessed beyond my imagination and what I'm going through what you might go through it will be for our good Peter you're crazy Peter, you're crazy. I will be blessed? I mean, do you really expect me to believe that? Peter says, yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. Let me ask you this. Can you rest in the fire knowing that you're being blessed by the fire? I don't expect to have convinced you in this short time to rejoice at every trial you face. I hope that I've given you a reason to believe or maybe not give up. Maybe this has been hard for you to listen to and difficult for you to process. If it has, don't worry. It's almost over. But i got to tell you, you're not in the worst company. Because remember who we began our story with? John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist, who was devoted to Jesus' teaching on humility, compassion, and generosity. Even for a man as humble and compassionate and generous as John as determined to be better and lead better and plan better, even John had difficulty with Jesus' teaching on suffering. Would you believe that John did everything that God ever asked him to do, all that he needed to do to set the stage for Jesus, yet he was arrested for it? You see, John got his nose in this sort of a love triangle with the family of King Herod. Uh, The story goes like this, that Herod Philip married his niece... You shouldn't do that, right? Herod Philip married his niece, and then Herod Antipas went over to see Herod Philip and says, I've fallen in love with your wife, who is also my niece, our sister's daughter. So I've fallen in love with your niece, Philip, so I'm going to take her, and she's going to be my wife. That's very complicated, and you should read more about that. It's, It's soap opera stuff. But moral of the story is, or maybe not moral of the story, John the Baptist shows up and says, that's wrong. Well, of course it's wrong, right? John showed up and said, listen, Herod, you're a a messed up guy. Your family is messed up, but this is is just, woohoo, right? This takes the cake for even y'all. Herod, you should repent. And then Herod's wife, who was his niece and was his sister-in-law, whatever she was, she gets angry and jealous and says, hey, husband slash uncle slash brother-in-law, you should kill that man. 
He said, yeah, I should. So he arrests John the Baptist. And John sits in prison month after month after month. He did everything Jesus asked him to do and more. And he was facing the death penalty. Surely, Jesus, John's cousin, the miracle-working extraordinaire, surely he would rescue John. Surely he would put Herod in his place, right? But days go by, months go by, and Jesus doesn't even acknowledge that John is in prison. And John's heard about all that Jesus is doing and the miracles and the wonders and the signs, and John is sitting there thinking, where's my miracle? Jesus? Remember all that stuff I said? That humble stuff? You know, I'm in it. But I mean this too. John's friend came to visit him in jail and they, they asked him, hey, you know, has Jesus visited you? Has he written to you? Should we not bring up Jesus? Okay. And look down at chapter 11, verse number 2. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ... He sent two of his disciples and said, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? John, do we really want to say that? I mean, you're the one that told us he was the Messiah. Now you're wanting to ask him if he is the Messiah. I mean, are you okay, John? No, I'm not okay. I'm about to die for doing the right thing and he can do anything he wants to do and he's letting me rot in this prison. So yeah, I'm starting to doubt if he is the one that I told everyone that he was. I'm starting to doubt, and this is one of those kind of an atti- you know, question with a little bit of an attitude. Are you the one we expected you are, or should we look for somebody else? Because you know, this is not really turning out the way I thought it would. Just like that, John's circumstances change, and his confidence in God changes. The once fearless prophet is now a doubting prisoner. The once convinced man of God is now a, pr- a, a, a doubting, fearful man. And again, isn't it true that if we hear bad news about other people, we feel bad, but we don't give up. But when we experience bad news, we give up. We, when we struggle, when, I, when you struggle, I pray for you, but when I struggle, I doubt. God can be so clearly sovereign over everybody and everything else, but our struggles, our perspective, we just shrink Him down to the size of our pain. That's the nature of pain, right? And John is right there doubting. And listen, John doesn't, Jesus doesn't respond, of course, I'm the Messiah. What's wrong with you? Or yeah, I'm working on breaking you out, John. Don't worry. Jesus sends word back and says, uh, go and tell John the things which you have heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have heard the gospel preached. So go and tell John that just because he can't see what I'm doing doesn't mean I'm not still doing it. I am very active in and around this world and I'm able to get you out of prison, John, but that's not part of my plan. And make sure you tell John, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Jesus admits that he might cause, allow, and do things that we won't understand. That he might be working in our life in a way or using us in a way that we might not ever realize to the full extent as to why it's happening. And he's just hoping and asking us not to lose sight of who he remains and who he is. Even though our circumstances suggest these questions about God, there are plenty of exclamation points about God elsewhere that prove that He is still good. And Jesus said, I'm just hoping, John, that you don't shrink me down to the size of your prison and forget who I was to you and who I still am 
even though my plan for you ends in that prison. If we're just focused on John, I'm, not, I'm sure John was. His followers, they were probably concerned about him. Jesus, do you, not just, do you just not like John? I mean, are we just supposed to go and tell him, hey, we, Jesus hopes you don't give up completely, but he's not going to get you out of here. Sorry. I mean, Jesus, you just not care. Is that how this works? Have you just kind of, you know, have you moved along? Are you just not his friend anymore? And Jesus assures us down in verse 11, I say to you, among those born of woman, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. He is the best man that has ever lived. So if you think this is because I have some vendetta against him, don't think that. He is a man of God. He's the greatest man that's ever been born. You know what that tells us? John was going to be in prison no matter his faith, no matter his obedience. In fact, he was in there because of his faith. I mean, people that say, oh, if you just believe more. John believed more than anybody and it got him locked up. Your personal circumstances don't necessarily reflect how God feels about you. Look back at what he's done before. The cross reminds us, defines how God feels about us. It shows that this can be interpreted through a different lens, that what you're going through is not the end of you. Look beyond. See what he's up to in the world. It's bigger than just us. The trials don't reflect his entire will and love for you. Church, we must focus. We must focus on how we in our circumstances still fit into God's plan, knowing that he loves us, he is with us, and he's still using us. Even if the way he uses us for his glory is not the way we would have expected. As for John, John is beheaded. Doesn't even get a funeral. But the story of injustice doesn't end with John. Jesus himself is unjustly arrested and tried and crucified. Yet that was all a part of God's plan. God's plan to show you and me where we stand and how He feels about us so that no matter what we face, no matter what we struggle with, we can rest assured that God does care. God is fair. The cross reminds us that no matter where we are, God is there too. God's preparing the way. He may be refining us, preparing us for something much better, something everlasting. And Jesus says, Blessed is the one who is not offended because of me, because your understanding and my will haven't lined up just yet. Bad days are bound to come. Blessed is the one who rebounds for God. Maybe you'll arrive at a place where you don't simply endure the trial, but you can even rejoice in the trial. Peter says that's possible. Be not surprised by this fiery trial when it comes upon to test you as though something strange is happening to you. But rejoice in as far as you share in Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed because one day it will all make sense. He says in verse 16, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let not him be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. It means you as a Christian in a world that often turns against you, in a world where things break around you, that's an opportunity to be used for God. I know what you're thinking. You mean our headaches, our heartaches, even the heaviest of weights, could they be for heaven's sake? Yes, I believe so. Obviously, this is hope for those of us that already face something today. But church, we can choose to suffer better 
or we may end up suffering alone. Not because God has left us, but because we shut Him out. It may be that this is, that it's in the fire, in the valley, in the trial where you see God so clearly, find purpose so clearly. His enduring power becomes greater than your unending weakness. And when that happens, you know this isn't the end. There's another chapter in the incredible story of God leveraging a broken world to build a better one so that as many broken people as possible can find an everlasting home. Isn't that why Jesus left red letters in the first place? So they may, we might would listen and turn and follow for the kingdom of heaven is drawing near. You know, red letters, I think, have changed us for the better in a lot of ways. So why can't, it cha- why can't they change how we suffer? For that one in the midst of a trial, just know it's nearer than ever, that God is nearer than ever before. For the trial, pain, and sorrow, it's another building block to God's foundation of His kingdom. And there's no fail in eternity. There's no drought. There's no defeat in resurrection. There's only hope. There's only life. There's only better. 